Since the beginning of our project at the Josias, and increasingly over the last few months, we've had a lot of attention around the question of integralism, what our aims are, how it would be practically implemented. In this episode, we wanted to sit down and answer some of your questions. I hope you guys enjoy it. Hello, and welcome to a very special episode of the Josias Podcast. We're doing our very first Q&A mailbag podcast, and we have with us, uh, as well as Potter and myself, we have uh, Chris Owens with us. Hello, Joel. Good to be here. Good to have you. Yeah, it's great to have you, Chris. Chris has, has started helping us also a bit with the behind-the-scenes stuff, getting better audio quality and so on. So many thanks for that, Chris. Oh, yeah. It's a great privilege to support the effort. Well, thank you. We, we do appreciate it. So uh, first, that lovely Mozart we heard, uh, so famous. Uh, why did you choose that for a, for a mailbag episode? Yeah, this is uh, the slow movement from Mozart's Eine kleine Nachtmusik. Um, and I chose it for a kind of uh, um, accidental reasons, as often as, as often happens. Namely, when I was a little child, we had a uh, an audiobook of fairy tales on tape, and um, the theme song for The Emperor's New Clothes was the slow movement from Eine kleine Nachtmusik. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I've long wanted to use this for the podcast. That's fantastic. Oh, that's great. Um, <laughs> well, hopefully it's it's our enemies for the emperor here and, and not us with no clothes. But Yeah, we're like the little child asking the questions. There you go. There you go. Uh, <laughs> so the first thing to note is that the response was really overwhelming. We got so many great questions uh, from so many different people. And many of them were, were really almost touching to me, like they were they they were they were kind of moving um, uh, to see people writing in and expressing appreciation for this uh, effort of ours, which is you know uh, uh, very uh, amateur. <laughs> but uh, we will not get to every question this time. But uh, I do think if it goes well today, we'll probably have this be a uh, semi regular. Uh, uh, sort of thing that we do. Um, and it was hard. I think the very best question we received was, uh, at least according to the forum, from none other than His Holiness, Pope Francis. And he wanted to know if he could come on the podcast. And I think I can say, you know, our Italian's rusty, but we'll, you know, have your people get in touch with our people, Your Holiness, and we'll we'll work it out. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Uh, with that, I'm going to... Uh, we're, uh, I'll go ahead and, and hand it over to you, Chris. Uh, why don't you get us started and we can kind of, you know, ping back and forth or however you want to set it up. Perfect. You know, it, it seems like there's a conversation that's happening in the social media, in the blogs, and maybe what this idea of integralism is, isn't so clear. And so what I'd like to start with is just a simple question that was anonymously posed uh, and, and maybe this can get us into the stream of the conversation, and that is, isn't Catholic integralism politically impossible, a fantasy, especially in culturally Protestant nations like the United States? 
uh, it seems like this this question gets to the question of you know what what is the aim of integralism what is what is the purpose of of the discussion can we do anything practical with this anyway what do you have to say guys well potter did you want to start or i could uh <laughs> well this was a very common question yes many of you asked this question some of you more in a more friendly tone than others uh <laughs> <laughs> yeah no but it's a good it's a good question and um i think that uh john brungart's recent uh blog post on shorting the the market for the common good um which we'll link in the description is a good place to start answering here namely you need to distinguish when you're talking about politics, you have to distinguish between different levels. There's a level of uh, of practical science considered quasi-speculatively, um, and then there's a level that's uh, practical science considered more practically uh, as kind of a, a concrete political project for a particular place, and then there's political action itself, which proceeds from, not immediately from science, but from virtue, namely the virtue of prudence, which takes into account all the actual circumstances at a given time. And you can't derive the, um, the acts of prudence from a speculative consideration of practical science. Um, but nevertheless, the, the speculative consideration is is necessary to uh, give you the kind of wisdom that you need um, to actually be prudent in any circumstance. So um, to, to get to the, the, the question at hand, um, there's one level of integralism, as it were, that is um, at the level of practical science considered speculatively, and there you're looking at what um, what is uh, human life in community, and what ought its goal to be, given what human beings are, and uh, given also that they've been elevated to a supernatural goal by God. So, if I could, I, my answer would be slightly more concrete. I think all that's really true uh, and, and profound. So on a more uh, uh, man-on-the-street sort of level, I think the problem is people, first of all, don't understand what integralism is and that there are... Uh, we have a friend who, who, who likes to refer to the waves of integralism, and I think he's sort of riffing off the fact that there's... In the three sentences, you start with uh, the idea that the common good should be the goal of politics, and then you move into more uh, Catholic concerns, such as the relationship between the temporal and the spiritual powers. And uh, so treating integralism as, it, as if it's only about one or the other is going to be a simplification. And in fact, we can move to work to the common good very quickly, uh, immediately. Uh, you know, any good proposal we have that's concretely practical should be aimed at the common good ultimately. Right. And the other thing is people mistake, uh, you know, people act, I think 
maybe particularly Americans act like practical thinking is somehow opposed to uh, uh, more speculative thinking. But if you don't, you can't do have any practical science if you don't have a goal. Yes. If you don't have a goal, if you don't aren't clear on where you're going, you're never going to be able to get there. So this idea that you can have, oh, you guys care a lot about the theory, uh, therefore you this is completely impractical is silly because if we didn't care about the theory, we wouldn't know what we ought to be aiming at. Exactly right, right. Um, I'll jump in here maybe and, and reflect on the movement away from learning about a subject in, in, uh, in undergraduate or graduate school that you, you absolutely fall in love with uh, and, and you become really just uh, convicted of the, the ideas uh, and, and you have to uh, mature in your understanding of these ideas uh, in such a way to, to actually live them out uh, and, and have it uh, order your life uh, ultimately towards heaven, right? right? Yeah, absolutely. And and I think every time that people act politically, there is an implicit understanding of what human life is for in that action. And um, if it's the wrong understanding, it's going to lead to bad practical results. Right. Um, so even if it's it's true that we might obviously today or tomorrow we're not going to have uh, the complete um, realization of all integralist principles in any uh, modern country, right? We're not going to have the the United States of America passing a, a constitutional amendment, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, making the Integralism in three sentences to be the law of the land or something. <laughs> <laughs> Nevertheless, um, even in, in, in what you were talking about with first wave integralist activity, um, you can be sort of aiming towards the goal of a more fully virtuous common life. Um, and then who knows what will happen down the line. I, I mean, this is what happened... Uh, when Christianity first spread um, after the conversion of Constantine, you didn't right away have the full realization of uh, Christian politics, but you had sort of a, a gradual stage by stage taking over of political life by Christian principles. Mm. Yeah, you know, this this topic came up a number of times too. A lot of questions about how do we practically start uh implementing these these principles um it, one comment said said they they love to hear uh the conversation but very often it felt like it was over their head that it was something that was very academic and uh not easily able to to be put into practice um what would you say to that yeah so i'll start on that one so there's there's two things here uh but Focusing on the question itself, I think it's important to realize that uh, we obviously tend by disposition to take the more intellectual side and the more theoretical side. That's sort of what our project is about. But any chance of success is always going to be much bigger than just our little site or our little podcast. And I think everyone can be... Uh, so every Catholic ought to live in accordance with Catholic social teaching and the teaching, the sort of Catholic political teaching. Uh, and I don't think that requires that you be super intellectual or necessarily 
you know, have read all of St. Thomas or Aristotle or anything like that. Well, that, doesn't that set up a sort of two-class system? Like, um, if the if the modern man is listening to the Josias and says, "Oh, well, the conversation is happening on this intellectual level," and, and then I'm I'm down here, how do we avoid the sort of um, the the Marxist and, and modern political tendencies of of categorizing integralism? Well, I think that um, it is it is possible for um the the as it were average man on the street as our questioner described himself uh to to grasp the principles um and maybe not every podcast has been uh successful in <laughs> breaking things down to the uh to the most intelligible level but i would i would what i would very much recommend is to listen to the the lectures on ethics by Dwayne Berquist. Mm. I link them in in one of the pieces on the Josiah. Yeah, we can link them again here. We can link them again in the description. Yeah, uh, in my piece on the good, the common good, and the highest good, I link Berquist's lectures. And he, um, Dwayne Berquist, was a master of leading the student by the hand to the truth. He starts with what's most obvious to everyone, and then goes very slowly. A lot of people can't listen to it because they don't have the patience because they get, come on, hurry up. <laughs> you know, this is all obvious. Um, but it's really worth it if you can, uh, if you have the patience. And if you think that our conversations are too intellectual, he would be a great teacher to listen to because he really takes you back to what's most known to you through common experience, your common experience of being a human being and desiring things and judging between good and better and so on. And then he leads you from that to an understanding of um, virtue and the common good and so on. One of the beauties of, of Christianity or Catholicism, at least, also is that if you read Aristotle, uh, very few people have the ultimate good of human life open to them, which is contemplation. But Christianity, through faith and through the sacraments and through grace, opens it up to everyone. The the people of the meanest understanding can still truly enjoy fruits of contemplation in a very profound and very, very real, deep sense, in the realist sense. Yes. You know, this whole conversation is reminding me, uh, one of my students when I was teaching uh, ethics, uh, just offhanded said, Mr. Owens, you're you're so magnanimous. And I just, I very quickly sort of <laughs> responded and I said, well, well, thank you. I said, said, unfortunately, I'm not sure I can be magnanimous. I don't have the means. So the most I could hope for is to be perhaps magnificent some, sometimes. Uh, I got this quizzical look from, from her and, and I started to explain Aristotle and uh, and and whatnot, and then then I just sort of said, uh, as Joel just remarked, um, although I suppose in light of of the Paschal mystery, uh, I, I can be truly magnanimous in light of of supernatural uh, infused virtue, uh, and and she just sort of said. How do you know all this stuff? <laughs> and, and and I said, and, and I said, um, I said, well, you know, I suppose I heard it at some point, and it was it, it struck a chord in me so deeply that I knew I needed to order my life towards it. 
And and I think this is often the mistake, whether it's in ethics or politics, is is the goal of of learning virtues isn't to have, you know, this categorical hierarchy of virtues, et, et cetera. It's to be virtuous. Right. And it's it's the same in politics too, right? Absolutely, yeah. This is the difference between um, practical science and theoretical science. In theoretical science, you just want to know the truth for its own sake. But in practical science, in politics and ethics, you want to know the truth in order to be able to become better and to help your community become better. That's it. I, I think that says it right there in a nutshell, right? What, what is the contribution of integralism to the, the conversation in, in political philosophy or theology today is, is what you just said right there, Potter. Just, just looking at uh, the, the series of questions here, I don't know if we want to change a, take a new tack. Um, and that is, um, there were some, some questions about historically, are there any, uh, any integralist states that, um, that, that can provide models for, um, for how we might find a path forward today? Yeah, well, the term, the term integralism is relatively recent. It comes from the 19th century. Um, it was first used in, in Spain in uh, controversies between Catholic liberals and, and Carlists and other Catholic traditionalists. Uh, one faction of which called themselves the Integralists. And then it was used in, again, in Germany um, in the late 19th century to uh, describe one faction of the German bishops, which were more traditionalist, versus uh, the more liberal faction of the German bishops. Um, and then, of course, after the condemnation of modernism, it was used to describe the anti-modernists. But the, the main teaching of it is something that goes back to the very uh, early days of uh, the Catholic faith in in Europe, um, the the baptism of uh, first of of the empire, you had the the conversion of Constantine, um, where Christianity was legalized, but then under Theodosius, Christianity really becomes uh, the officially recognized religion of the empire, officially recognized as true. And Theodosius and some of his successors um, really tried to, to legislate accordingly. I mean, if you, even if you look at the Code of Justinian, you can see how the truth of the Catholic faith is presupposed to Roman law at that point. And then, of course, after the barbarian invasions, you get various barbarian nations who convert to Catholicism. Clovis, of course, in, um, in France is most famous, or the baptism of France there. So you have a long history of uh, political life in Christendom, which tries in various ways to realize what uh, integralism tries to um, describe from a theoretical practically theoretical perspective uh, that really sees um, political life as ordered to the common good and uh, tries to subordinate the temporal common good to the supernatural common good. Yeah, I was just going to say an excellent book to sort of build your ability to imagine uh, societies with a sort of different ordering is, is Andrew Willard Jones's book, uh, 
which which really makes it concrete and gives lots of examples. It's uh, beyond church and state, and we've talked about it on yes. the podcast before. But I I highly recommend it. But it is it's one example. It's uh, uh, France uh, back in the day. But the other thing is, you know, r- truly good states, like truly good people, are going to be rare. Uh, the idea that having a thoroughly good or really good state is easy is a, I think, a modern idea. I think Aristotle and Plato reject that idea. Most governments are mixed in the sense of they're kind of like most people in between good and bad. They're not wholly evil. They're not wholly good. But there certainly have been many examples of truly good, outstanding uh, states and cities that one could uh, use as an inspiration. You know, I love the mention of, of Willard Jones's book. Um, I think the introduction there actually um, is worth reading just for a sort of palate cleanser, right? Right. His his entire point is um, is that we we in our modern sort of framework we we don't even have the um, the the epistemic contact uh, with with this uh, idea of a sacramental kingdom that that uh, was was realized. Uh, you know, in the high Middle Ages, you know, perhaps, uh, you know, more or less perfectly, depending on on what you think. But um, uh, right, but right. but the idea that uh, that the the temporal powers and the spiritual powers would be ordered towards the same end. Uh, I think he does a great job of helping expand the imagination for uh, for how to think about this project. Yeah, very much so. We had a. Um, I'm part of the Dialogos Institute in Norcia, um that you've also been involved in, Chris. And uh, we had a conf- the last Dialogos conference um, there in Norcia was on models of integralism, and we looked at various examples. Um, so a number of of uh, late antique and and medieval examples, but then we also looked at certain modern examples. None of which I, I think we concluded none of which were sort of uh, ideal instantiations of integralism, but they were sort of moving in that direction. Um, I gave a talk on Engelbert Dolfus's uh, May Constitution in Austria that was sort of moving in an integralist direction, and it didn't quite reach <laughs> the goal. <laughs> um, and John Joy gave a really interesting talk on on Ireland um, and the Irish Constitution and. Uh, its strengths and weaknesses. Now, uh, we we're trying to understand our framework here, and we we said that uh, although the uh, principles of integralism have been around as long as the church, uh, and and you know uh, even as as Laura Jones points out, to even even before Christ as well, um, you know there, there's um, there's principles there. Um, but you said in the 19th century was kind of this crucible where um, terms started being defined and used perhaps even polemically. Uh, and, and another term that you threw out earlier that, that was a question um, that was raised is, um, okay, if integralism is, is one, uh, one approach, wh- what is this liberalism that, uh, that we hear about all the time? Yeah. So we've, ta- I mean, we've had a, a couple of episodes on liberalism, so we'll just give sort of the very, very short version here liberalism basically begins um in the 
early 19th century as kind of the, those people who consider themselves to be moderate proponents of the ideals of the French Revolution, of liberty, equality, and fraternity, but not sort of, they, they, they want to distinguish themselves from the extreme uh, revolutionaries um, who, you, you know, had the reign of terror and all these things that sort of discredited um, the revolution in some ways. So they're, they're the sort of mediocre revolutionaries. The <laughs> and they, they uh, come to be seen as kind of the, the reasonable people of goodwill position in the 19th century. This is, <laughs> you know what, everyone who has a, uh, who's not a nut, uh, who's not a terrorist or a reactionary, he thinks, okay, well, the, the French Revolution basically had the right principles. Basically, we want um, the the goal of human community is the promotion of liberty and equality and some kind of fraternity of that. that fraternity is always is the one that the liberals are less interested in than the than the uh, more radical revolutionaries. The more radical revolutionaries are always more interested in fraternity than the liberals are, because the liberals tend to be more upper crust. They. Um, <laughs> I mean, all revolutionaries tend to be sort of middle class or upper class, um, but the radical revolutionaries at least identify themselves with the downtrodden masses, whereas the liberals, historically, they tend to uh, identify themselves with the middle class and uh, with mediocrity in general. <laughs> <laughs> and basically, the idea is that um, the goal is not... Uh, human happiness itself, the good of man, that is the goal of political action. But the goal of political action is freedom. Mm. That is freedom for each person to realize their own goals, whatever they happen to want. I see. I see. That, that, that makes a lot of sense. Now, tell me, um, we've got integralism, we've got liberalism, and then, uh, you know, in, in our conversations on, on Scary Catholic Twitter, um, you know, wherever, wherever you might uh, find it, there's, there's a new term that's uh, emerging that's actually um, got quite a, a bit of uh, credibility behind it, and that's this idea of post-liberalism. Uh, what, what's the, the difference between integralism and post-liberalism, either speculatively or practically? Yeah, I think of post-liberalism really starting as uh, a, a set of sort of ideas and thinkers that are the same sort of things that uh, led to the Josias and just some of the people haven't gotten the uh, gotten the message all the way and are still groping in the dark a bit. <laughs> is that uh, is that too uh, too polemical? <laughs> well, I think that post-liberalism is a bit vaguer than integralism. Right. Integralism has a very clear alternative to to liberalism, whereas post-liberalism is a term that can be applied to many different um, mm. tendencies. So, for example, you have um, a kind of Christian anarchist tendency. Um, Stanley Hauerwas, the the uh, sort of Protestant, I guess, ambiguously Protestant uh, American theologian, he uh, he would be an example here. He would, I think, consider himself to be post-liberal. Um, but his solution is not to have uh, a political rule that actually 
rules people and and uh, <laughs> guides them towards their good and helps them grow in virtue and so on. But his his solution is sort of an anarchist solution that is get rid of politics. Politics is bad news. The only real politics is the church, and then that uh, with a certain understanding of the church there. Um, not including temporal life as part of the church. Uh, I see. Especially not including temporal power as part of the church. That's really helpful. Yeah, and some of the other some of the other ones, and I mean, maybe this leads into some of the other questions we got, but some of the other post-liberals tend to be very focused on localism and small communities. And there's a lot of good in those ideas, yes. uh, which we can talk about in a, a second, but they tend to not really... Uh, they tend to see the state itself as more of an evil always, which is also a very liberal uh, sort of tendency is to see the the state as something that needs to be uh, limited and that the state is only given certain rights because the people are giving them up and they only give them up for great goods such as safety, but they don't want to give up too many because then it would just be tyranny. Yeah. So one, one tendency there is sort of the classical, classical republicanism, um, which says that Basically, the idea is that a common good to be really common um, is only possible in in small communities like the Greek right. polis, and so big political empires and uh, like the United States and so on, just, it's never going to work. Um, and basically, what you need is a return to small local forms of political community where people can deliberate together about the common good uh, and really live a life of civic friendship. Right. And we talked about that in the the episode on empire a lot. And, you know, there's a lot to be said. Often, uh, I feel like integralists just sort of dismiss these notions as poppycock or, you know, hobbitism or whatever you want to call it. But there's a, there's a lot to be said for it. There's a reason Aristotle thought the common good, you know, that there's a reason he ended with the city and didn't go bigger. And that's because there are big problems with trying to uh, figure out how you could have a common good for people who never see each other, never talk to each other, don't really seem to have much in common at all. Yeah. Now tell me, um, this is a good transition moment. We're kind of getting into ways and means and hows and what fors of integralism. So a fundamental question that came across several times and phrased different ways by the questions was, does integralism imply or necessitate monarchical rule, or is it compatible with democratic forms of governance? This is a great one, because it is it is a uh, confusion that comes up a lot. And, and I'll, I'll let Potter answer this, but uh, it, I'll just say that I think this is people see integralists and they think, oh, you're all a bunch of monarchists. Now, that's true. But it's not the entire story. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's true kind of accidentally insofar as many monarchists, um, that is many integralists are monarchists de facto. And if you look at the history of integralism, the first political party to call itself integralist was a, a, a Carlist party in Spain. So they were definitely monarchists. They were supporters of one particular branch of the, the uh, Spanish royal family. Um, but there's no necessary connection. Uh, Pope Leo XIII teaches um, many times, uh, very emphatically, um, that the church has a certain indifference towards political forms. That is, any political form that's really ordered to the common good um, 
is acceptable. The church doesn't tie herself to empire or to monarchy or to uh, aristocracy or to democracy or to any particular form of mixed polity in which, which, you know, in practice all polities have some admixture of monarchy, um, aristocracy, and, and democracy. But the church doesn't commit herself to any, any particular um, mixture of them. Pope Leo says, you could settle in the abstract which is the best, and um, I've tried <laughs> to do that, <laughs> maybe not successfully, but it's, it's kind of a secondary question. For a particular uh, community, the form of government that's best in the abstract is maybe not the best, given their right. circumstances. That is, you have to look at the traditions of a particular people um, and the dispositions, their dispositions now, the, how many of them there are, and right. so on, what kind of uh, traditions and institutions they have, um, and then you, you try to do the best you can with what you've got. The, the form has to fit the matter, in other words. Right. So I think of it like uh, the traditional teaching is that religious life is the highest and celibacy is the highest, and then permissible but not the best is the married state, and then, I don't know, you know, right out is, I don't know, li living in sin or something like that. Uh, so uh, even if there is, even if many uh, integralists make arguments about which is the best considered in itself, the best form of government, the best for particular people is going to be the one that they can achieve. And if there's something they can't achieve due to their circumstances or whatever, then they shouldn't go for that. Right. And there are two, I think there are two kind of um, opposite principles that are kind of in tension here. I think it's kind of a, it's kind of a fruitful tension. Namely, the one principle is that because uh, the common good is a good that is really shared among many without being diminished, um, and this is true of the, the common good of a complete human society in a, in a kind of excellent way. That is, you want both the intrinsic common good of a political society, which is the order of peace among the uh, members of that society, and the extrinsic good, which is their actual life of virtue together. Um, you want those to be shared by everyone. Um, because of that, there is a kind of fittingness to having many people participate in deliberation about the common good, because it's really their good. It's not an absolute necessity, right? Because they can participate in it even if they're not um, participating in rule, right? You can be contributing to the peace of society even if you're not a legislator or a judge or anything like that. But nevertheless, there's kind of a fittingness to the participatory that comes from that. So there's some fittingness to, uh, to having um, democratic elements in the polity that allow for political participation. Mm. But another principle is that um, man is wounded by original sin. And because of the, the wound of original sin, man has a particular tendency to pride and uh, to rebellion. Um, the original sin is basically a sin of pride and disobedience. And uh, because of that, it's particularly necessary 
in order to be habituated to virtue, to uh, be a subject. So the that uh, the medicinal aspect of subjection is very uh, very necessary for man in this order of providence and given the. Uh, sin of our first parents and so on. Well, and, and Aquinas, if I can jump in here, he goes one step further, right? He he actually asks the speculative question, uh, would there be a headship of one over another without original sin? Right. And and yeah. this is precisely his image of the ship, right? Um, where he says, absolutely there would be, uh, because the purpose of rule is not only for punitive purposes, for uh, you know the punishment of sin, but it's more properly ordered towards the common good and ordered most efficiently and effectively when there is rule directing that uh, towards it. I'm so glad you brought that up too, because that's one of, I think, the drivers of a lot of errors here that I see from various people is that uh, because of the wounds, so much of government is necessarily taken up with things like preventing crime and punishing criminals and you know doing things to keep people from from committing crimes so so much so that people make the mistake of thinking that's what government is it's just coercive power to keep us safe and to keep uh the vicious checked if they can't be deterred uh but aquinas points out that while that is certainly a part of government here and now in this fallen world it's not the ultimate and the deepest sense of government yeah and there is there i mean there is also a a good to uh the order of rule itself that is that it belongs to peace as as you were saying chris to have uh rulers and subjects so even even if you have a even if you had a a a, um a human society in which uh, original sin had never taken place and so on. Um, surely you would have a lot of participation. People would deliberate about the common good together and so on. But you would also have a hierarchy. You would have rule. You would have rulers and subjects. You'd have different uh, stations within society. Uh, and in that way, the that order of rule and obedience of being led by someone who has a greater excellence towards the common good, that is itself a, a, a part of the beauty of peace that you see preeminently, of course, in the angels, where each one right. has its own particular spot in the, hierar- in the angelic hierarchy. Yeah. And the lower ones are governed by the higher and so on. And, and in fact, you know, uh, Aquinas comments on the passage about how uh, God is the font of all paternity here below and in heaven meaning that there's uh, fatherhood in some, yes. in some uh, mysterious sense among the angels. And without uh, totally um, falling into Trinitarian heresies here, right? <laughs> uh, you know, there, there is something fitting about the fact that divine revelation has, has revealed in a way that is knowable to us as humans uh, an image of the Trinity and of the life in heaven uh, and, you know, in the scriptures, we hear constantly reference to the kingdom of God, right? So it makes a lot of sense why um, 
people would say, oh, those integralists are, they're just, they're just monarchists, right? Um, it, w- without peeling back the layers of the onion here. And I, I feel like this conversation has, has helped to tease that out a little bit more. So the next question that's right along the same veins here is, is democracy inherently incapable of working toward the common good, but rather just for compromises in private goods? No, I don't think it's inherently incapable. I think any pure form of government is has its dominant fault and, and its particular weaknesses. And democracy's dominant fault. But I mean, but presumably when they say democracy, they're not meaning a pure democracy, but they're meaning a a mixed constitution in which the democratic element has some kind of preeminence. Yes. Um, and the 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 faults of that kind of constitution have been well delineated by uh, Alexis de Tocqueville in Democracy in America, where he shows how it, it tends to uh, foster kind of individualism um, in the citizens, uh, a kind of falling away from concern for the common good and factionalism, of course. And I mean, there's, you, have, you have admirable examples of democracies acting for the common good, especially in time of war. Right? War, war is the father of all, says Heraclitus, and that might not be exactly true, but it certainly does awaken in people a love of the common good at times, mm. if it's a just war. Um, and you see that in, in some of the great so-called democratic regimes of recent times, though obviously they're not pure democracies. So, uh, you know, I, I'm a medievalist by training and, um, and I love the entire uh, genre of literature, uh, you know, the mirror of princes, yes. um, these sort of treatises that, um, that rulers would ask great learned men in their minds to write uh, a discourse on virtue for how they can rule the best, right? And, um, and of course, I'm a Thomist as well. So, uh, so that great one to the king of Cyprus by Thomas Aquinas yes. on ruling. Yes. Um, I think it it well summarizes, uh, you know, uh, the the categories on the types of of government and and uh, their virtues and their vices, uh, and how how um, a less perfect government in its virtuous form uh, actually will prevent uh, the the vices of the more perfect form of governance, and and so there's sort of right. uh, this funny interplay between uh, you know rule by one or rule by few or rule by many in their virtuous and vicious forms. And so uh, it, it seems like, um, you know, democracy, is, as it was asked, it becomes this sort of catch-all for uh, uh, almost the cynic's perspective that other forms of, of, of uh, rule just aren't able to be done well. And so therefore we've got this inefficient, but at least we're all, you know, organized towards... Well- and part of this question comes because there's a modern idea of democracy that we have often resisted because it's wrong. But the modern idea of democracy is something like uh, states are legitimate to the extent that there is a social contract and that people agree with the government. Uh now, you could try to agree to have a king, but that would really end up being illegitimate because what if he took some policy that most or all, virtually all the people didn't like? Therefore, to keep the state legitimate, you need periodic elections and so mm. on and so forth, and maybe even referenda on certain important issues. Uh, 
So it'll be a mixed government, but the, democ- uh, the, the democratic element will predominate. And you see that, I think, I think you wrote, Potter, about how even, even dictators these days justify their regimes uh, with, uh, you know, pretend elections and whatnot. <laughs> you know, right, 99%, right. you know, everybody in North Korea has voted in uh, the Un family for, <laughs> for all these years. What a great democracy. Uh, <laughs> right, right. But this, this notion is wrong because, in fact, as scripture teaches and as reason shows, uh, authority does not come from below. That's not how it, it, you might need. Obviously, if nobody consents to it as a practical matter, at the very least, the government won't be able to do anything. Uh, but uh, the idea of a social contract is wrong, and that's what gets pushed against. But you can have a democracy, and you and you did uh, in the ancient world, for instance, without that mistaken notion. Yeah. So the the key. Uh the key principle for government is the common good. Right. And the, what makes a government not just uh, the random imposition of force, but actually an authority that binds you in conscience that you have to obey on pain of sin. Right. Um, That has, that comes to, to that authority comes uh, through the common good. It ultimately comes from God, the source of all authority, uh, and the one who has um, created human beings with a certain kind of nature and a certain perfection uh, of virtue, and um, a government that secures and promotes the common good uh, enough, as it were, <laughs> so that you have a, a, an actual society, a, a community of many who are pursuing one good together, that's a legitimate government. Whether it's a democratic government, whether it's a representative government in the modern sense or not is kind of irrelevant. So this leads right into a question that was raised, um, and it was a a very long question here, and it it makes a lot of assumptions that that I'm not really sure we're ready to commit to, but I'll I'll try to rephrase it here um, and, and just see if we can't tease it out a little bit more. The question is about whether integralism requires a, a centralized state uh, or, you know, could a, a confederation of states, um, you know, be integralist, so-called. Um, it's, who, who's this question from? We can read out their pseudonyms, at least. <laughs> oh, yes. Very good. Um, uh, this was St. Augustine of Hippo. St. Ah. <laughs> Augustine of Hippo. Excellent. Uh, yeah, there's a sort of string of questions that were kind of like uh, Vermeule versus Deneen to sort of uh, yes. speak in caricatures of, of each of those thinkers or a lot more nuanced than that sort of... Uh, but but it's you know sort of helpful to think of it as sort of... Uh, there was a bunch of questions where the theme was, as I alluded to earlier localism versus the uh yes. administrative state yeah and and why, why does aristotle stop with the city yeah so there's a lot to unpack there right i mean this is a this we could have multiple episodes just focusing on this and we and we ha- could and have had essays on the site that delve into all this but potter why don't you why don't you start us yeah. up well uh, an important principle here is what has come to be called the principle of subsidiarity which is was most famously enunciated by um, Pope Pius XI in Quadragesimo Anno, 
Um, and all true true integralists follow the teachings of Pius XI. We know this. Uh, the Pi- there's it, this gets this is kind of a, a tangent, but um, the anti-integralists li- always like to to class integralists as kind of uh, sort of only begrudgingly following Catholic social teaching, and they would point to certain controversies about the Ralliement in France that, that perdured, that began under the reign of, of Leo Thirteenth, when certain intransigent <laughs> French Catholics uh, <laughs> refused to accept the papal policy. And the same thing happened with Pius XI. There was the whole affair of Action Francaise, Wait. where Cardinal Billot then ended up um, resigning the sacred purple because he was so upset that Pius XI uh, had um, banned the Action Francaise and so on. And, and excommunicated various figures, but anyway, the, the, that's kind of irrelevant. We uh, at the Josias uh, are faithful uh, disciples of, of Pope Pius XI and all the popes, um, even if we disagree with them on certain contingent prudential matters. But <laughs> in their authoritative teachings, of course, all integrists follow them. And this is an authoritative teaching of Pius XI in Quadra Jesimo Anno on subsidiarity, namely that it's unjust for the higher um, society to usurp the role of the lower society. Mm. And he says that in modern conditions, um, there are many more things that, uh, that require a higher authority to intervene. And he's thinking there about the complexity of modern economic life. Um, Properly. I mean, according to, to the Aristotelian, teaching and which was developed by the scholastics and so on economic life as even the etymology implies uh belongs in the society which we call the family or the household um that's the society that's most immediately concerned with the preservation of mere life as aristotle says obviously in a way that's going to dispose the members of that society towards the the higher common good of human life um which is the good life, which is the, the proper object of the city as a society. But Pius XI is recognizing that because of the complexities of modern life, um, you're going to have to have a lot of economic regulation by the state. Um, you can't leave everything up to individual families because production no longer takes place in the household. In modern civilization, it takes place mostly outside the household. Um, so the the principle of subsidiarity is that uh, when possible, um, the each society should uh, be able to fulfill its role. Take the clearest example here, which is the relation of, of the state and the family, which are two different kinds of societies with different, um, specifically different ends, uh, as St. Thomas would say. That is, the, the end of the family is... Um, subordinate to the end of the state, but it's not a part of the end of the state or reducible to the end of the state. So the family has uh, a certain, the head of the family, the father has a certain jurisdiction over that society that the family is. And um, the state shouldn't usurp the jurisdiction of the head of the family and say, okay, we're going to, you know, um, take over the education of your children you and your wife can go work in the factories and the kids are going to be in daycare. Um, this would be unjust, right? Usurping the role of the family. 
Um, but nevertheless, subs subsidiarity takes its name from subsidio, meaning help. Um, when, because of, of adverse circumstances, the lower societies are not able to uh, fulfill their role satisfactorily, the higher society should support them, should give them the subsidium, the help they need in order to fulfill their role. So th that's a clear case because there you have specifically different societies, societies that are different in kind. But the scholastic teaching, which Aristotle doesn't share, um, is that you can have multiple complete societies. There's multiple societies that are ordered to the common good of human life, to uh, peace uh, as the intrinsic common good of, of a human society and to the life of virtue as, the, as human happiness um, itself, as its extrinsic common good. Um, so you can have the Duchy of Austria, say, is a perfect society, but then the Holy Roman Empire is also a perfect society. And uh, they're both ordered to a complete end, to virtuous living of human beings. Um, but the, the Holy Roman Empire shouldn't usurp functions that the Duchy of Austria is able to fulfill. Mm. The Duchy of Austria is able to fulfill certain functions better because it's smaller, the people know each other, the Duke of Austria knows all the main uh, aristocrats in the duchy, all the main noblemen and, and their chief vassals and so on. There's personal relationships there. Um, so the, whole, the emperor should only intervene when um, there's some problem that the, the duke isn't himself able to, to solve. Or, for example, when some of his subjects are protesting the duke is, you know, being unjust, then the emperor should intervene and say, okay, we'll look at the, uh, look at the case and see what, what's really going on and so on. And so whenever you have a, a true common good, you should have an authority. So if there is such a thing as world peace, um, if there is a peace among nations, then you should have a world government. But it should be a world government that doesn't usurp the functions of smaller um, political communities, uh, that doesn't try to do their job for them, but one that, that tries to, that's ordered to truly global problems, to world peace and um, stuff like that. So I think the reason this question comes up is because some of the more the more prominent integralist thinkers are theorists who talk about a lot about the central state and issues with the central state and strengths of the central state and stuff like that. So it seems like maybe uh, it's easy to make the mistake to think that integralism is all about, I don't know, some sort of uh, Soviet style. Centralizing yeah, power. Yeah, centralized power where everything is planned centrally. And that's actually the opposite of the case because there's certainly a place for central authority bureaucracies naturally build yeah, themselves yeah. around an emperor and that that can be a very good thing but uh the difference between the holy roman empire and say the the soviet empire is precisely because it retains uh the 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 form of empire retains the subordinate states having their own uh proper spheres yeah would, would you say that's an equivocation on the word empire going on here oh yeah yeah they're, they're they're two completely different things i think uh 
I think there's definitely an equivocation there. Well, the there is some kind of equivocation, but there is also the um, aspiration to be a, a kind of universal rule that brings peace right. to all men. Yes, both in the Holy Roman Empire, they carry that over from the um, from what was good in the in the pagan Roman Empire that ideal, and that is present to some extent in the Soviet Empire, not in the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics itself, but in the Communist Party of the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. Right? The, the Communist Party saw itself as being the vehicle of bringing about yeah. world revolution and therefore world right. peace. Right. So, so subsidiarity, coming, coming back to this though, because if on the yeah. one hand, integralism is not a sort of socialism or, or communist rule, right? Um, on the other hand, uh, bringing in this concept of subsidiarity is not a sort of libertarianism either. No. So how do we how do we find the virtuous mean? Yeah. Well, I think Potter really really stressed it in that in each level you're looking for the common good. So the sort of libertarian localism is a I'm going to go off in the woods, leave me alone, you know, keep your governments off my uh, property and off my rights, and you know, away from me. Uh, this version is more that. Aristotle, there's a reason Aristotle saw the common good as existing in the polity, because or the or the city, the polis, because the common good do, there is a common good that resides there, and really only properly resides there given our human limitations. We're not, you know, we're only, you know, we have a human scale, and that fits a certain common good fits that human scale. Uh, but if there's another common good, which is the peace of all mankind, which is maybe even really only possible in a full sense with Christianity, then there would be need to be another authority that would relate to these other authorities without and perfect them perhaps without replacing them or destroying them. Mm. Yeah, if you and if you look at uh, the sort of concrete circumstances in which we're in now. You see that there is a, and Pope Benedict XVI emphasized this a lot in Caritas in Veritate, and actually Pope Francis also in Laudato Si talks yes, about this, yes. that we have, we have a lot of problems now that are global problems. We have um, kind of vicious pseudo-societies that are not ordered to a common good, but to private right. goods, namely multinational corporations, who have tremendous power and the globalized economy that we have now. And um, there, there's an urgent need for some authority that could, um, that could rule them and order them to the common and that And that's a good... And of course, that, a separate question is whether it's good to have those. Obviously, it's not good to have those. I think it's not good to have those multinational corporations. And ideally, they'd be broken up. But given that we do have right. them, there's some need for authority. And so I think that's actually... And I think it's... Uh, what ties to some of the questions about what can you practically do. Some yes. of the thinkers about integralism, the reason they get this rap for being uh, so central state and all, which I think is understandable, but a little unfair. The reason is they say, look, we have these global problems. We need a global solution that's going to require a strong state. Whether or not that's the ideal, you know, if you're just talking about how would we arrange things perfectly, that is at least one possible path to getting from where we are today to getting to a place where uh, 
people are more directed towards the common good rather than uh, rapacious private goods dominating yeah. society and dominating government. Exactly right. I feel like this is a, a moment, um, uh, Pater, you brought up Pius XI. Of course, I think that everybody after Pius IX just started having a lot of freedom with the relative inexpensiveness of, of printing and just started writing lots more. I mean, <laughs> give me those one page or less sort of documents any day of the week. And, and it seems like Leo started uh, making things longer. Pius XI blew things up. Of course, John Paul II wrote Encyclopedia. But uh, it, it does make it a little bit bit harder to to discover the essential principles and, and you know I joke because um, because there's yeah. beautiful writing in in there but it, it makes it harder to discover the principles of integralism uh, and in particular in reference to Catholic social teaching as you brought up um, I um, I feel very privileged and fortunate my Catholic social teaching professor was Dr. Alan Fimister, now of, uh, of uh, fame and notoriety, perhaps. <laughs> yeah, he's, he started Catholic social teaching uh, with, with two very simple and, and, um, and very local sort of economic considerations. One was slavery, and the second was usury. And, and these were some questions that were brought up in the, the submissions uh, and that is, how do we deal with the microeconomics in a modern era where macroeconomics sort of take all of the freedom away from the local family unit to actually um, exchange in, in the market, uh, as it were? And, and what, what sort of economics does an integralism entail? Well, um, here... <laughs> that was a big question, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is a big question, and it's kind of a complicated question. And again, it goes back, in a way, to the first question, that it's not as though you can derive all of the... Um, yeah, practical science is not like geometry. You can't just derive all these propositions from the principles and say, in every situation, this is the kind of economic system that you need to have. Um, the the important thing in economics is really this, that it be subordinated to the real ends of human life. So what's really perverse is uh, the current economic system that we have, um, in which economics is seen as kind of this autonomous realm, um, this technology that produces goods for us. Um, and uh, the, the measure of economic success is just uh, the growth of, of uh, profits and um, of gross national product, so the, the amount of goods that are being produced and so on. This is kind of very um, dangerous understanding of economics because it separates it from its role in human life. Mm. And so what one principle that you do see repeated again and again in, in all of Catholic social teaching, even if you, you have kind of there, uh, I agree with you that there's some of the more recent documents are a little bit unclear because they seem to juxtapose different principles. One principle that remains constant is that um, economic life is subordinate to the good of the human person, that is, to the, uh, the common goods uh, that human beings are, are made for. and so um, economics has to be organized and, and directed 
ruled in such a way that it produces goods that are useful for human beings to live a virtuous life. And it shouldn't become the dominant concern of human life and sort of the, the absurd situation that we have now where economics sort of is the master science and it, the, it forces politicians to do the bidding of the most powerful economic uh, figures um, in our society and where the whole of human life sort of becomes this absurd uh, um, business of, of producing more stuff. Um, economics has to be put in its place. It has to be ordered to the common good. You want to look, obviously there are technical aspects. You have to understand how you can produce goods well, given human nature and also the limitations of, of human beings and their weaknesses and so on, how economic goods are best produced and best distributed in a just way so that everyone can uh, has the material means that they need in order to live a, a virtuous life. Joel, jump on in here. I know you want to. I think I think that uh, so uh, I, I think that's right. The problem with economics is that it's always about private goods, at least as far as I can tell. Economics is primarily about private goods, and as such, it's necessary. We do need private goods, like if you don't have food, if you don't have shelter, these are huge problems. They're essential. But they're not the end of the story. If you read Aristotle um, in Politics 1, or in the early parts of Politics, Politics 1 and 2, maybe, I forget, uh, he talks about how you have a family and then you have a village so that you can have all the necessities that you need for life. And then you finally have the city so that you can live, not just live, but live well. And it's clear that the city isn't just about the greater economic arrangements you can get, but it's about these other goods that are truly common that can come and that the economic uh, reality should be ordered towards them. Sadly, that's topsy-turvy in our time. And how exactly we will live. So there's kind of a trap that our opponents and sometimes even even uh, people unwittingly place, but our opponents definitely put it. On the one hand, they want to say, you guys are impractical. What are your concrete suggestions? And on the other hand, they want to say, give us, if you don't give us a step-by-step -step, you know, guide, you're impractical. Or on the other hand, if you get too particular, it's obviously there's too many assumptions that you have to make. Uh, and you need to avoid this because what we should do is be clear about our goals, be clear about the order of goods that we want to see and what we would like to have happen, and then be uh, opportunistic in the sense that we take whatever opportunities are there and we're not tied to some multi-step plan that's you know just impractical. So you can't always know what it's going to look like. You, you you have to have a certain flexibility to say, well, we know what we need on a theoretical level. Let's take whatever opportunity we can get and we can, you know, figure it out step by step. Yeah, let's just stop right there and let's appreciate that this is an eminently practical bit of counsel, right? That there are goods that we need to hierarchically organize and we need to make sure that uh, that one actually is ordered to the other. Right. Uh, this this is a very practical bit of counsel. 
Now, now it certainly doesn't get you into the mechanistic sort of A, B, C, D, here's how we have a perfect society. But, but it certainly gives a good bit of counsel for the path forward. And, and certainly, if not the path forward, definitely the paths that aren't forward. Right. <laughs> we, can rule out, <laughs> we can rule out an awful lot, which is helpful. Maybe a little bit of a tilt. We were talking earlier about uh, Pius XI and this recognition that economics are, are growing in a way that requires a more centralized um, governmental oversight. Right. Um, and, and in that same period of decades, uh, we had you know, the English movement of, of Chesterton and Belloc called distributivism. Right. Does it relate to integralism? Is it sort of a, a happy bedfellow or are there some uneasy tensions between them? What would you say to that? Well, distributism is is founded on um, Catholic social teaching. Um, it, it takes particularly one aspect of Catholic social teaching um, and tries to reorganize society according to it. That is, if you look at the encyclical Rerum Novarum of, of Leo the Thirteenth, which was kind of the the um, the charter for for the distributist movement in England. Um, Leo Thirteenth, he, with respect to economic reform, he has two kind of two concrete proposals, um, both of which will be developed further um, in later papal teaching, especially in Quadragesimo. But the one proposal is uh, distributism. That is, he says that uh, you should give the workers a good wage so that they can save up money and then buy their own land and then not be workers employed by someone else anymore, but work their own land. So that's a, a kind of um, a desire to return to return the production of goods to the household, return economics to its etymological sense of household management. Um, and that's what integralism is all about. Back to the land. Um, regulate industry out of existence, uh, give people enough money so that they can buy their own means of production, you know, uh, and privilege uh, family-owned farms and family-owned businesses so that the, the big uh, oligarchs go out of business and uh, everyone produces what he needs for his own family. So this is this is what integralism is all about. And there's, um, there's some uh, great advantages to this approach. Uh, in, in all other things being equal, it's better to work for your own, uh, for your own household on your own uh, means of production than it is to be a servant of someone else, which is what a worker is. Um, yeah, there, there might this, be some accidental advantages to being a servant. Yeah, there's this great <laughs> there's this great line, and I love uh, reading Chesterton because he's just got such a way of turning a phrase, right? But uh, he dedicates some seven chapters or, or more um, to to these questions in his book, "What's Wrong with the World," yeah. right? And and uh, there's this great image he makes early on is the distinction between the public house and the private house. And when he uses these words public and private, he's not uh, talking about them in the, the 
uh, political terms. Uh, he's he's actually making a play on words because, of course, in England the the public house is uh, is the pub, right? right? And he says he says uh, you know we make a great uh, show of of the men going out of the private house and into the public house uh, where where real work is happening, um, <laughs> and and yet uh, and yet uh, you know that which is building up uh, the society. Uh, that that's happening in a hidden way uh, at home in the private house, and and that's where the the real work is is being done. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that's true up to a point. I think there's certain things that I mean, there's certain common goods that can only be had in public, but not. I think that Chesterton is right that they're not had in kind of public economic activity, and a whole bunch of workers, you know, working for one capitalist. Um, they're had more in in kind of political activity. But uh, Rerum Novarum also, also presents another uh, proposal for economic reform that's meant to be complementary to distributism. And that is um, kind of very briefly sketched in Rerum Novarum uh, towards the end where Leo talks about trade unions. Um, and this will be developed much more in Quadragesimo Anno by Pius XI. Um, and this is what comes to be called corporatism. Um, and this is the, the kind of economic organization that you need for big economic enterprises that aren't, um, that can't be very well done by one household. So where you need the cooperation of a lot of different workers. And here, the idea is that you want to have, um, you don't want to have the situation that's denounced by Rerum Novarum of uh, basically all the power being concentrated in the hands of the capitalists who own the factories and everything and the railroads and um, all the land and uh, the mines and everything else. And they uh, basically drive the workers like slaves and give them a starvation wage and uh, enjoy all the fruits of their labor. What you want instead is to have a cooperation between the owners of the means of production and their employees so that they deliberate together about uh, the, the good of, of their economic society, um, the good of their enterprise, and uh, what kind of products should be produced and so on, and what a just wage is. So that everyone gets a, a living family wage. So, so the kind of uh, granola—I don't know—idea of a co-op that uh, is very popular in the '90s and and even had some very successful models either locally or even nationally. Uh, you, you often associate it with like the the organic uh, hippie sort of thing, but but actually, it sounds quite uh, integralistic in in its approach. Yeah, yeah. It's I mean. Um, you know, E.F. Schumacher, the, the British e economist who was sort of the darling of the granola countries, he wrote the book um, Small is Beautiful. He, he actually read, uh, read the, the, the papal encyclicals and was struck by their good sense and uh, uh, reasonableness. And, and uh, so a lot, of, a lot of those ideas that are considered kind of lefty and hairy lefty ideas um, <laughs> are actually, you know, good old uh, medieval Catholic ideas that were being sort of developed in new circumstances by the popes and so on. So, and yeah, and, and another, I mean, 
Again, there's many ways. In a certain sense, integralism is a very high level theoretical, in a sense, statement about uh, the practical ends we ought to choose and the way the church and state ought to relate. Uh, so you could, so it, it is practical, but there's many different ways you could have integralist states that were a republic. You could have integralist monarchies. You could have an integralist mixed regime. You could have, and they could all look different too, depending on where they were and what their people were like. But another individual who read uh, with approval and with uh, with uh, some degree of inspiration read the papal encyclicals, particularly those of Pius XI, I think, was uh, uh, FDR. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So again, it seems very lefty, but in some ways the new uh, the New Deal had a lot that we could learn from and a lot to commend itself. And that's kind of the opposite side of the more localist uh, Chester Bellock distributivism. But sure. I think they can be, I think they're both uh, approaches that can be fruitful and which one you emphasize and whether you're more local or more centralized, I think is really a prudential question that depends on who you are, where you are, and, and what the circumstances are. Yeah. You know, this moves right into um, uh, a big, broad section of the questions that we received, uh, and maybe we won't get to all of them, uh, but we could start down the road, and that is the question is, what is the role of the church? I mean, we're all Catholics, and, and Potter, you're a priest, uh, uh, but what, what is the role of the church in um, in guiding or directing an integralist vision for society, well, as the as the lay person here, as the representative of the state, I, I'll defer to the spiritual authority. Well, I think um, an important point to keep in mind is that the church is said in many ways. So <laughs> this is the, the podcast of things said in many ways. Um, <laughs> there's uh, um, in, in the Willard Jones book that, that we um, referred to already talks about this a lot. It's, it's really a work of ecclesiology as well as a work of history as does Alan Femister's new book together with, with uh, father Thomas Crean. Um, they talk about this too. As actually does another book I'd like to to um, recommend, which has actually had a lot of influence on my own thinking, Walter Ullman's book on the growth of papal power in the Middle Ages. And Walter Ullman actually begins, um, I call him Walter because he taught in England. I suppose he was actually christened Walter, but <laughs> uh, he begins that book, The Growth of Papal Power in the Middle Ages, by saying the that historians of his day um, had come to the realization that uh, the, the question of church and state is basically irrelevant to the Middle Ages. Um, the real question is the relation of clay and lyrical power. And the reason for that is that once um, society has been baptized, has been converted, then temporal life is included in the church. So the lay the church is not just the clerical hierarchy. The church um, includes the lay people. And this is not a discovery of Vatican II. This is the, the basic uh, assumption of the whole, uh, of, of the medieval Christendom. And especially it's the, uh, 
um, the assumption of the Gregorian reform, um, which in the investiture controversy was very concerned with distinguishing lay and clerical power, but not in the sense of distinguishing the church and the state um, in a modern sense, but as distinguishing two offices uh, within the church. Now, obviously, the state and the church can exist separately. You can have a, a kind of preliminary, uh, a, a society that's kind of perfect in a preliminary sense, insofar as it's ordered to the temporal common good. Um, but more perfect is when that temporal community is integrated into the church, when it's baptized. So that the, and if you look at the, the liturgies of the coronations of medieval kings and so on, you see a lot of emphasis on this, that the, the temporal ruler is um, a member of the church and he's governing other members of the church um, with respect to temporal matters, but not as separate from the church. But what, but what this does mean is that there is a distinction between the competence of spiritual authorities and of temporal authorities. Mm. The long way around to kind of simple que- uh, answer, um, we, we recently published a new translation of St. Gelasius I's um, letter, usually called Duo Sunt because of the section of it that was excerpted in canon law, begins with Duo Sunt. Famuli veste pietatis is the intrepid of the whole letter. And um, there, St. Gelasius distinguishes between the roles of uh, the, the royal power and the pontifical power. Um, the, the pontiffs are concerned immediately with eternal, the eternal salvation of their subjects. Um, and so the, Pope Francis is, uh, in his, his own rather idiosyncratic way, trying to lead us all to eternal salvation. And uh, his various decrees and uh, decisions and so on are all supposed to be ordered to that most universal of all universal common goods, which is God himself, whom we hope to enjoy in the beatific vision. Um, and temporal authorities are not immediately pursuing that good. They're, what they're immediately after is the, the common good that's achievable in this mortal life, um, which is the life of virtue here on earth and the peace of society and so on. And uh, there's a, a certain bearing of that on the, uh, on the spirituals. So you have to have an order between those two. But it's not, it's not the role of the church to decide all political questions, for example. So Leo XIII and Pius XI, they'll give you principles for economic reform, showing how economic life can be subordinated to the end of man and so on. But they're not going to, it's going to be lay Catholics, finally, who uh, have the role of deciding about the contingent application to a particular community. For, for instance, Leo XIII, uh, as we were discussing earlier, teaches that you can have a variety of forms of government. Right. And who's going to decide that is going to be the temporal authorities and the, the, the lay uh, exactly. uh, people exactly. broadly uh, spoken in each state. Yeah. It was interesting um, in Austria when the, the, the May constitution came into force in Austria, the bishops decided to, um, to actually forbid priests from taking part in in politics, up until that point, in the first Austrian Republic, and and under the, the um, the last constitution of the of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, 
you had had a lot of priests who were in politics. Um, one of the chancellors uh, after World War I was Monsignor Ignaz Seipel, who was um, the, one of the most talented politicians, pr pretty much the only talented politician in interwar Austria. But, uh, <laughs> but once, um, once the, the sort of liberal uh, anti-constitution had been overthrown, then the bishop said, okay, now we're going to tell all the priests to stop direct involvement in politics, uh, and the lay people should uh, now uh, step up and, and do the work. That's, that's really interesting to me, because uh, one of the, the um, programs that I, that I work on is about uh, formation of the laity uh, to understand what their role as as laity is in the world, right. and uh, it seems like this is uh, an aspect of of our imagination as Catholics that um, that we've got too narrow of of a definition of church, as you started off with Pater, right? And uh, it's interesting. I was just reading rereading the section on the laity from Lumen Gentium, which which very clearly lays out. Uh, you know what the duties and the responsibilities as as baptized, right? So not not as agents of the hierarchical church or anything like that, right? Like as as if we need to be deputized to go and and uh, and evangelize, right? Uh, right but right. but if we if we live our Catholic faith as laity in the world properly, uh, you know, a question that was raised by um, at at Sammy's, Sammy's dot was, uh, you know, shouldn't we be working on um, on evangelizing or an apologetic element in our culture before we get to this, you know, grand integralist construct. Um, and and I think he he's got a he's got something right here. Uh, and and um, and that is that we need to understand our role as laity, and we need to uh, to live that in the world, guided by the church. Um, and uh, and it's not as if we've got to do one before the other one happens, right? There. They're happening yeah, exactly. you know, at the same time. Yeah. His, question, his question was about, uh, you know, he was like, uh, since I became Catholic, this has been easy for me to accept. But to sort of paraphrase what he's asking, shouldn't we focus on converting people and getting them to believe in God first? And I think, I think you're on the right track when it's, it's not uh, either or, it's both and. And one of the reasons that integralism is important is because sort of one of the one of the conceits of liberalism is uh, is this conceit of neutrality as if you can have laws that don't end up teaching the people. But I think it's true that law is a teacher, and that's the integralist view of law that it's that it's a teacher and that its teaching function is maybe its first function. Uh, in which case, not only is it both and. But by doing by to the more you can get integralism going, the more you can help people come to the faith and strengthen them in the faith. And this is sort of uh, reminds me of that famous episode of Augustine when he talks about how he had thought, well, no one should be, uh, you know, we shouldn't apply too much force. We should try to reason with people. And then he saw that the Donatists who were sort of forced to uh, repent of their errors actually came and believed and that it was good for them. Joe, but let's understand you uh, correctly here, right? When you're talking about uh, law as a teacher and instructing people to the good and, and that, in a certain sense, evangelizing, you're not talking about a sort of 
Christian state where laws, uh, you know, sort of reinforce, uh, you know, uh, religious belief. You're you're talking about the sort of the natural law. Um, well, I think it could be either. So I think if you had a a Catholic state, I think the uh, church can be helped there. Where that's possible, that's the ideal. Uh, but also, if you have a state that follows the natural law, that will help people follow the natural law. Yeah, I mean, Augustine is Augustine is very helpful here. There's a there's a wonderful volume of Augustine's letters to um, on political matters uh, that Father Robert Dodaro put out. Um, and the, if you read the letters that he wrote to various Roman officials, they're very helpful because he's uh, he's writing to officials. The empire is sort of in the process of becoming Christian, but there's still a lot of sort of pagan holdovers and so on. And a lot of a lot of his letters to Roman officials, they're about things that seem not very immediately concerned with the the, the ultimate um, common good or the subordination, the immediate subordination of, of temporal life to spiritual life, but they're they're about um, matters of justice and mercy. And what's the right approach to uh, correcting criminals and so on? And he's advising these uh, officials in what to do. And he's always telling them to keep in mind what the final end is, but that doesn't give you them an automatic recipe for what to do in the particular case. Um, so, well, to take one example, this is kind of an example of, uh, of a more immediate uh, relation of spiritual and temporal things, but it's one that stuck in my memory. Um, there was so there were some Donatists who had, had murdered one of Augustine's priests in Hippo and, and sort of tortured him to death and so on. And uh, the Roman, um, either the proconsul or the vicar of Africa, I can't remember who he was writing to at that point. Anyways, this Roman official, he was he wanted to give them, you know, make an example of this of this murderer. And um, Augustine is advising him to to be merciful and to give a smaller punishment than he was intending to um, and explaining how the, what the, the uh, pedagogical advantages of this and so on are. So, but I mean, the point is this, that in, in political action, you're going to try to seek the good insofar as it's possible. You're going to try to oppose grave injustices like abortion and so on um, and various kinds of perversion that are being promoted today. Um, you're going to do that ultimately with um, the final, your final end in in view, but the kind of immediate uh, the the kind of immediate action that a layperson is capable of in this time is uh, can be very concrete and kind of remote from the ultimate, but it's going to be aimed at promoting virtue and. Uh, helping people towards the good. Fantastic. Wow. Um, Potter, uh, a question that was directed in, in the um, contributions uh, from, a, from a priest, uh, Father James Fields, was how can priests help to lay the groundwork for an integralist Catholicism through their preaching, especially in the American context? Yeah. Well, one thing... Um, I mean, this again, this is, there's no recipe here. This is a matter of 
of uh, pastoral prudence in particular circumstances. So I, if I think about my own preaching, I preach very differently depending on where I'm preaching. <laughs> if I'm preaching in my own parish, with the parish of Garden, where um, God bless the, their souls, they're uh, wonderful people in many ways, but it's a relatively liberal Austrian parish. It's pretty close to the capital of Vienna. And um, I have to feed them with milk, as, as Paul would say. They're not ready for the red meat. Um, but, <laughs> but, <laughs> but one thing I do try to emphasize over and over again is really this principle of the primacy of the spiritual, um, which and not necessarily drawing out the immediately drawing out political implications from it, but trying to show them that because, you know, man is a social and political animal, and it's so easy to for us as human beings to think that what's important is what society thinks is important right this is sort of connatural to man to think what's really important you know that's what you know where the political rubber hits the road and and in a in a um a sort of ambiguously liberal state the there it's so easy for people to think well you know religion is kind of this private add-on that um, you know we do on Sundays, but it's not really the real business of human life. So a lot of my preaching in, in my own parish is just about the primacy of the spiritual. And, and the fact that the happiness that God is promising, promising to us is really a common good that we're pursuing in common. And it's more important than anything else um, in our lives. Um, when I'm preaching to sort of more uh, groups of more zealous uh, in, in in inverted commas, more zealous uh, Catholics say, I, I, I preached once on the Feast of Christ the King to uh, the Loretto movement, which is a Catholic, um, one of these movimenti in, in you know, sort of happy, clappy, uh, charismatic Catholics. But uh, they're very zealous. And so I gave them like a really flaming sermon on the kingship, the social kingship of Christ. And they were all very <laughs> enthused by this. Um, <laughs> fantastic wow well uh i know we're we're short on time here folks um i wanted to have a couple of these fun questions so the first question that i have as sort of a random question is directed to pater edmund from a pseudonym called josias co-host uh, who could that be I, i'm not sure who that could be <laughs> uh, oh no what's this one the, the question is after austin what is your opinion on the greatest English language novel or novelist? Okay, shoot. <laughs> I was hoping to avoid this question. So my, my um, I mean, these, these rankings are always sort of based partly on ignorance because I haven't obviously read all of English literature. Um, <laughs> but my, my conviction is that Jane Austen is the greatest English novelist. Um, and so, but... What would be the, the best English novel that's not by Jane Austen? That's a very difficult question. Um. <laughs> you, you've had time to think on this one, Potter. <laughs> yeah, I, I for, well, I, I should have had time to think about it. I kind of forgot about <laughs> that this was going to come up. Um, so, so my answer... Yeah, let's hear your answer. And it's a very idiosyncratic answer because I'm not sure... Uh, you know, some things you love because of the sort of uh, 
vagrancies of, of your personal ch- taste and how you were raised right. and all that. And then other things are just objectively great. Uh, right. And I'm not sure that this isn't the, the former rather than the latter. And also, he doesn't have one novel that necessarily stands out above all the others. But my favorite is probably Trollope. That's probably my after Austin. Yeah, I really love his his. If you yeah. can take him as a whole, because he's more like a long mountain chain than one like that has just a couple peaks. He's he's my yeah. favorite. English I really favorite. love Trollope too. I'll give you a few highlights of English literature that I think are really not only not only are they my favorite, I mean, my favorite work of English literature, I don't think is at all the greatest. It's the puppet show of memory by Maurice Baring. That's my favorite for purely uh, accidental reasons, but it's, it's a beautiful book, but I don't think it's the greatest um, by any kind of objective uh, poetic measure, but a couple books that I think are really great. um, Jonathan Swift's Gulliver's travels. Brilliant. Brilliant book. Uh, Daniel Defoe's Robinson Crusoe, obviously, sort of the archetypal depiction of a modern man, the Cartesian <laughs> subject, isolated on his island, dominating nature through his artifices and so on. Um, then uh, I love Trollope, like Joel. Dickens, too. I mean, Dickens is, is uh, he seems kind of childish, but there's, there's just a profound humanity in Dickens. Um, and then in more modern writers, Evil and Wa is great. Uh, Brideshead Revisited. I was about to say, Brideshead is, is my favorite uh, of all time. Yeah, I think it, it gets uh, it gets attacked from two directions. There's sort of the the Wa fans, the sort of um, anti-Catholic Wa fans, like uh, like what's his name, the the actor who played Jeeves in the uh, Stephen. Uh, uh, Fry, yes. Stephen Fry, yeah, Stephen Fry. He likes he likes the early wa, the the sort of uh, early satires of of uh, decadent English society. But then he hates Brideshead because it's religious. It gets attacked from that side, and then it also gets attacked from people who are kind of tired. Catholics are kind of tired of other Catholics raving about how it's the best thing ever. But it really is really good. It's <laughs> see, I, I think <laughs> it's a really think, great novel. <laughs> I think wa is his satire is his strongest suit. And I think his satires are probably the objectively the best. And then in terms of, I'm probably the Catholic who's, who's, I have a bit of a contrarian streak. So I love Brideshead. It was my favorite. It was I like, Brideshead, when I was 16, I think is I was my favorite, novel. favorite book ever was Brideshead. But then, yeah. you know, I stopped being 16 and I realized the, the sort of honor trilogy is better and his satires are better. <laughs> I don't agree. I think they're, they're all excellent, but I think Brideshead is the best. We were speaking about a an imagination problem, though, in in our, our Catholic faith, uh, you know, culturally today, and yeah. and it seems to me like that's precisely the um, the thing that Brideshead sort of forces you to confront is that to be a Catholic novel doesn't mean that it has to have you know a Catholic priest hero who's going around solving mysteries or right. you know that everything is good and, and happy clappy but you know that it really confronts uh, without being explicit and overt it confronts the the reality of sin and of the need for grace and mercy right right and I think sort of honors the other well I mean I guess there's Helena too but a lot of his satires have nothing, you know, they're just, they're just dark, funny books. Completely unredeemed. A handful of dust. Is- <laughs> oh, it's so great. It's so great. It's, <laughs> so, it's so great. And uh, Black yeah, Mischief. But then, of course, I also, I also, to take another, another much maligned um, 
Catholic novel, if it is a novel, if it can even class it as a novel, um, which many people are going to cringe when I say this, but I think that Tolkien's Lord of the Rings is really a towering achievement of English literature. <laughs> Joel is laughing his head off at me. <laughs> I, I like it. I like it. I think we, we get different things out of it, though. Fair enough. Okay, so so really quickly then, um, uh, Pater Edmund, uh, Joel, uh, favorite Marvel superhero? Oh gosh! <laughs> uh, Spider Man. I don't know why. Well, because I was because I liked him when I was a kid. I guess that's why. Now we're we talking about like the Tobey Maguire sort of Spider Man. No, no, no. About, like, the I Tom think Holland the best... sort of Spider Man. Yeah, the 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 new one, which is closer to the original comics, and I liked him because he was more. So many superheroes are always fighting yet another thing that's going to destroy the universe. And there, there's sort of a, a power race that goes on where they're always becoming more and more power, powerful. Spider-Man was a very local hero and he had really local problems. And like, you know, often the villains were just guys trying to rob a bank. And like the problem was, you know, he was having trouble at his job and he, how could he juggle all the stuff he was trying to do? So I liked, I liked, I think that's kind of what, uh, what drew me into him. Yeah. Um, I, I never read the comic books and I've only seen a couple of the movies, but, uh, I enjoyed the movie, the Hulk. <laughs> it came out when I was in college. The Ang Lee one. <laughs> the Ang Lee one. I, I can't remember. It was Edward Norton. Out, it was a great movie. Yeah. Edward Norton. Oh, the Edward Norton one. Did that come out when we were in college? I thought the... That came out well after we were in college. Maybe I'm... No, that came out when we were in okay, college. Okay, I'm older than I think I am. Or, or younger than I think <laughs> I am. Uh, but, um, if Edward Norton is the person I think he is. <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of big The Hulk is kind of fun. I do yeah. like the Hulk, too. Well, I had already said before the show, Iron Man's my guy. Um, you know, I, I, I really uh, see a sort of Saul to Paul sort of conversion uh, you know, story there, and um, and the fact that he's the one guy who doesn't have superpowers, and he's like putting it out there on the line all the time. He he's he's our local man's hero right there. Excellent, Chris has Chris has got uh, a custom Zoom um, background that's sort of a bunch of Iron Man suits, <laughs> and he looks like he's ready to jump into. <laughs> That'd be excellent if we had a bunch of integralist Iron Man. <laughs> Um, <laughs> this project would be a lot easier. <laughs> All right, here's here's another question. It's about uh, it's about um, uh, the Bible, and um, you know we see a lot of of use of the RSV in um, English scholarly sort of work. Uh, of course, uh, in America, we use the New American Bible with the lectionary, and and in uh, in the UK, they use the Jerusalem Bible. Uh, I believe the Vol- I believe the Vulgate is the lectionary at uh, at the place I go. <laughs> Saint Jerome's Latin. Thank you very much. <laughs> oh yeah, very good, very good. The Clementine Vulgate. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yes, not not the Nova Vulgata. <laughs> and then what's the place of, for instance, the Dewey Reams in all of this? Thoughts on Bible translations. Joel's is obviously no translation. Beyond Jerome. <laughs> well, well, no, I, I mean, <laughs> I, I really think uh, I read different translations uh, because, you know, you, you 
you I like uh, approaching translated text if I'm not going to read it in the original, which I usually am not. I like approaching it, approaching it through many different versions, and then maybe even having like some sort of critical apparatus if I'm really, or for just reading for fun. I probably read the RSV or for fun, just reading for you know to read it w without trying to for study fun. it. <laughs> I probably read the RSV most right. commonly. I think the Due is actually often closer. Uh, I think it's a better translation in the sense of meaning. It's harder to read. Uh, yeah. It's less idiomatic English. It uses a lot of uh, Greek and Latin and Hebrew idioms. Um, my my favorite Bible to read uh, as a as a pleasant good to use uh, <laughs> Joel's approach when I'm reading for fun. Um, sacred Scripture as <laughs> a means to pleasure. Um, the uh, <laughs> I like to read Robert Alter's translation of the Old Testament, which is finally complete. He he's been coming out with various books of the Old Testament piecemeal for the past thirty years or whatever, and now finally we have the whole Old Testament translated by Robert Alter. Obviously, it's translated by uh, Robert Alters, uh, a secular Jew. It's translated from the Hebrew. He consults the Septuagint and the Vulgate um, sometimes just because they had manuscripts that he doesn't have and so on. But obviously, it's not uh, written from the uh, – it's not translated from the perspective of a spiritual reading of the Old Testament, which the Vulgate obviously is. So it, there's some portions that um, that I think – you know, uh, if you were going to, if you're writing a commentary, you would translate mm. it differently. If Jerome himself, commentary in the light. Jerome of himself tradition. used both Greek and uh, Hebrew texts, as well as actually, I mean, a lot of it. He also based on the the Veda. What do they call it? The Veda. What's the? the yeah, the Veda Latina. Well, he he wanted to go back to the Hebrew. Augustine. There's a great letter from Augustine to him where Augustine argues he should translate from the Septuagint. Um, he consults the Septuagint. Well, he did like he three versions of the Psalms, at least one of which is from the Greek. Yes, exactly. Oh, I have one, one uh, just for the New Testament. So Robert Alter for the Old Testament, and then I like to read uh, Richmond Lattimore's translation for the New Testament. I like translations that are all by one person because they tend to be better English. <laughs> King James was, was quite a translator. That's all I, that's all I know. <laughs> well i have uh one question bringing us back into the topic of integralism and it's not a criticism as the way the original questioner wrote i can't find the question now uh, out of the hundreds here but the, the question was really about integralism and the spiritual life and and there are two questions relating here one is is there a room in the publications on the josias for a, a section on prayer, on spirituality, from an integralist approach. And that leads into maybe the, the more conversational question is, what sort of spirituality or spiritualities, spiritual traditions, might one who is trying to, to live as a Catholic integralist, uh, you know, learn about, to, to read up, up about, to learn how to pray in that tradition? Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a, a great question. The church is... The church has such a treasury of spiritual wealth um, from the actual lives of uh, the saints, and, but then also in the writings of the saints and the great teachers of the spiritual life. Um, and uh, this, the, the church, 
is a good mother, she accommodates herself to, to her children, and people have very different dispositions. So I've written some stuff about spirituality, not on the Josias, but on um, other websites on San Crescenzo's my blog, and on uh, the, I wrote a thing on prayer for Church Life Journal, for example, a few other things. And, you know, I, I'm a Cistercian, so obviously I've been trained in the rule of St. Benedict and in the writings of the Cistercian Fathers and so on. And I love some of the modern Benedictine writers like Blessed Columba Marmion. So, I mean, the, the, that's what nourishes my spiritual life. And, and then obviously St. Thomas as well. St. Thomas is not only a peerless theologian, but he was a great mystic. And his, the, the, his writings on prayer and um, spiritual discipline and so on and on union with God both in the Summa and then also in the commentaries on Scripture. They're wonderful and brilliant and beautiful. But I think that, again, um, the church is a mother who accommodates herself to her various children, and you have to find the the treasures within the great treasury of the church that are most uh, conducive to your own holiness and salvation. So if you want to be an Ignatian and do the spiritual exercises, go do that. Yeah, I, I don't have I don't have any any uh, any particular. I'll let the master speak, and I'll <laughs> be silent here. I mean, and I think there, there would be room on the Josias. We have the the table of contents. We have not only the sections that are sort of immediately concerned with integralism, but since everything is connected, as Pope Francis says in Laudato Si. We also have question, you know, a section on uh, speculative philosophy and and systematic theology. So, and there's also a library section where we post stuff that's like you know all the old encyclicals or whatnot, and either post them ourselves or post links to them. We can post certainly post more uh, prayers there as well. Yeah, no, and I think I mean again to go back to Saint Francis's dictum, everything being connected. As Pope Francis, yeah, yeah, Pope Francis. What did I say? St. Francis. Oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah, Pope Francis, uh, not yet canonized, still gloriously reigning. Um, <laughs> uh, everything is connected. So I did another piece on Church Life Journal that's about integralism, integralism and the logic of the cross. There was a, a response to um, Timothy Troutner's uh, interesting piece on integralism. Um, and there I, I use the the rule of St. Benedict um, to show kind of the analogy between spiritual discipline and political discipline, and how the same principles of uh, helping that the abbot uses to help his monks towards eternal salvation um, are used mutatis mutandis by temporal rulers in leading uh, their subjects towards virtue. Well, this was great, guys. I think we have to to wrap up now. Chris, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is a lot of fun, guys. Yeah, thank you so much. And thank you, Chris, for for moderating the questions and so on. Did a good job. Potter, as always, it was uh, such a pleasure. This was a lot of fun. We didn't get to a ton of questions, including some big subject areas. So if you didn't have your question answered this time, submit it again. And maybe we'll even come back to some of the ones that were submitted for this time. But uh, I think this is really fruitful, and uh, thank you for, for listening, and 
for all that you do. Signing off. <laughs>